This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Hey. Hey, sorry, we started late. You're cheating. You're cheating on me. Didn't You went on the change log before. <laughs> no, I didn't. Didn't you? I went on Ruby, oh. Ruby Rogues before. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it is. Did you, did you, talk, did you talk about me? <laughs> A little bit. Plug the bike shed. Good. I gave my first talk with the cane this weekend. Yeah? Did you use it as a prop? Wave it around? No, I should have. I, I can't wait to see the video of it because, like, the pictures, I looked pretty cool with the cane on stage, I got to admit. I like this <laughs> new cane. It looks much better than the old man cane. Because <laughs> it has flames. Because it has flames. Right. And a handle that doesn't have, like, the admittedly very ergonomic and useful grip. <laughs> right. And it's significantly less practical, but I don't feel terrible about myself walking around with it so reasonable trade-off yeah seems like a good trade-off i've been uh in the time before we started this recording i jumped into the uh rubyconf cfp program again because i'm on i don't know if we talked about it on the show but i'm doing the program committee for rubyconf this won't come out until after the cfp is closed so <laughs> i don't have any advice to offer you on specific talks that i would like to see or i do but it doesn't matter because you won't hear it before uh before it comes out but, but the bigger question is do you accept bribes <laughs> of course I do. Yes. Um, I don't, I don't condone bribery, uh, <laughs> but I'm wondering, based, there's only like, there's like five days of the CFP left as we're talking right now oh, shit, in your talk, in your experience, like when does the, when do the glut of responses, when do the glut of submissions come in? So just three hours before it closes. Okay. I think, I assume that RubyConf is less popular proposal wise than RailsConf is. So I've been trying to keep up with it. I'm I've reviewed the most out of the people on the committee, but there's a couple other people who have also been like trying to keep up because I don't I just don't know what's coming and I don't want to be like rushed into being like, I don't know, three, four, two, one, four. Um, no, this is why during RailsConf I was begging people to submit earlier because, yeah, it's it's reasonable to keep up with it during this stage. And we've already reached the point where I don't have time to go back to you. Right. Early on, I would I was engaging with people being like, hey. Uh, I just ask them questions about like, what do you mean by this? Or like, what will you talk about when you, when you say this one bullet point, you know, give me more. And then if you had gotten during the early stages, if there had been one more proposal per day, do you think you still would have still been able to keep up with it? Yeah, sure. I didn't review every day. I just reviewed like, uh, once a week, maybe I've been going on and just like doing 10 or 15 at a time. Yeah. Maybe 20. The first time I did it, I think there were 30 proposals and I just sat down and did all 30 or 25 of them or something like that. But it's been really, uh, the proposals are good for the most part. You know, it's clear people care about, for the, for the you know, there are outliers, but it's clear that people are excited about the thing that they want to talk about. So I don't know if people are just in a, getting better at writing proposals or the proposals that come in early maybe are better than some of the ones that come in later and people take their time to, I don't know. I have no idea what to expect. It'll be I interesting. I think that is to a certain extent true because the people who are submitting earlier are the people who are putting thought into, like they want to speak and they submit it early because they want the feedback right. yeah maybe so we'll see 
I don't know what to expect. I didn't I didn't look at last year's graph to see what the submissions were like there, but it should be fun. I've never I've never even been to a RubyConf before. So oh. <laughs> being on the RubyConf the review committee, I guess. The program committee. Program committee, yeah. Is interesting. Uh it, it does there are a surprisingly low so far there have been a surprisingly low number of talks that I've had to be like, this is about Rails. No, because that is kind of one of the one of the chief things they say is like if your talk is primarily about Rails, then submit it to RailsConf instead. Yep. But it's been fun. I'd suggest it to uh, anybody who's interested in such things. Find a way, talk to somebody, ask somebody, say I'm interested in being on the committee, you should recommend me. That kind of thing. For reference, for most of the CFP period for RailsConf, we got between one and four proposals a day. It picked up a little bit and started averaging around seven for like a week and maybe two weeks before the CFP closed. And then the day that the CFP closed, we got 128. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess I'll be busy for a week or so afterwards. And then the day after the CFP closed, we got 14 somehow. I'm guessing guessing this graph is UTC and not Eastern time, which is when the CFP closes. Right. Or mountain time, rather. The CFP closes at mountain time. Yes. I have a thing that I want to talk about. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about your thing. See, see where it goes. So on my client project currently, there was a we wanted to introduce this new API that's for like this new area of the site. And it's very similar to an existing API in that it uses the same tables underneath for storage. So the idea was we want to reuse as much of the code that we were using in the original API as possible. So I was like, that sounds good, but I'm sure there's going to be some problems with that. So I looked at it for a long time, and the team said the desired approach would be to use inheritance. right? So we'd introduce this new controller that would inherit from the old controller, and we'd go from there. So I looked at the solution, or I looked at the current solution, the current API, and and was just like, I'm not comfortable. First of all, in general, I'm not comfortable using inheritance as a solution for code reuse, because I'd rather just re like compose things <laughs> and use yeah. them that way but uh you know i was like okay this is the way they want to do it let's look at it and give it good once over and so i looked at it and i was like oh, i don't this is not a good base to build on you know like it's not simple there's a lot of code here there's a lot of places i i feel like in order in order for me to be happy with the code i'm writing i'd have to add new hooks and things like that to make this happen but so we had like a brief kind of like I struggled kind of like communicating this at a high level other than to say like I'm just not comfortable with it and here are a couple things I could I think might go wrong and then on the other side people like the 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 team was saying like well here are the things we want to do that we know would benefit both APIs right so they're saying like if we can share as much of this code as possible and both APIs benefit I'm saying I just don't think it's an object, right? Right. I'm saying I don't think I don't think that that's the right way to go about that solution. And also, I think that that the amount of stuff you want to share is actually overstated, Mm. and that eventually you're going to find that you're that the the amount of stuff you're sharing is greatly outweighed by the pain that's caused in the drift. But ultimately, like because we were talking in not specifics, it just wasn't going anywhere, right? Like I was saying, I'm more comfortable with this. My experience tells me this, and they were saying like. This is what we want, and we want it for these pretty valid reasons. And so ultimately, I just kind of decided, like, okay, you know what? I'm going to build it. I'm going to do it that way. And so I spent, like, the last day or day and a half building it with inheritance. 
And the solution actually turned out I didn't have to override as many things. I had to do some really crazy things to get around some of the crazy things that were happening in the base class. <laughs> like some, um, at one point they have like an object. I just tweeted about this because I thought it was funny. It was like an object that takes 16 positional arguments. <laughs> John almost did a spit take right there. <laughs> like there's too many parameters, Lint. <laughs> Oh, it's disabled with Rubo. It has RuboCop disabled parameters. No, but I mean, I mean, there's a number of parameters that like that Lint is going to complain about and is right for complaining about, <laughs> and it's way fewer than 16. Yeah. So, like, in order to do this without kind of a crazy thing, I would have had to make that longer. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. So ultimately, like, I think, use a keyword argument. Well, what I did was I didn't use. I didn't want to refactor the existing. Like, it's really weird. The the object exists only to provide dot notation access to what should be a hash and there's open struct for that right but, right you know i don't think that they knew about open struct when they wrote the code so it's just like i pass a bunch of positional arguments in and you expose them to me as adder readers and so i didn't want to do that so instead what i did was implement 2h on that object <laughs> and then in my code call super dot 2h merge the attributes I want and wrap that all in an open struct so I can pass it on to the thing that expects dot notation and I was just like okay that was the first sign that I was like oh I don't like this <laughs> yeah like, but I mean ultimately I got it done in less code than I thought I would have to override so from that perspective I guess okay but then I had a moment where I was like I submitted the PR and I usually will go through each PR and if there's something I feel like you might not be familiar with this concept let me like add a little explanatory note or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or let me tell you what I was thinking here. And I ended up reviewing my own, own PR and tearing it to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I felt somewhat bad because I thought I was wondering if it was like disingenuous of me to say like, okay, I'll build it that way. And then immediately like say like here, like, but I also felt like now we're starting to see some of the things I was saying in the actual code. And where we can actually have a specific discussion about it. And I didn't know. So right. I felt like I felt conflicted because I felt bad that like, I feel like maybe they're going to think I was being disingenuous, which I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I never expressed excitement over doing it the way that I was, that I was going to try it. But at the end of the day, I just kept looking at it being like, this isn't code I would be happy with if somebody submitted to my project. I think it's only disingenuous if the code you came up with is significantly different than the way they would have written it to the extent that like it could be argued you were building a straw man. Yeah, I think I did the best I could. Um, right. No, and I, and I, I would assume that that is the case. Right. Like a discussion is made better by having actual code to be able to discuss. And that's what I figured. And I think that, you know, I think it's possible to look at that and be like, actually, it's not bad. Let's just go with it. But I think it's just it's it's just going to keep happening as we like. This was one endpoint that I exposed, and as we want to expose more endpoints that are inherit from other endpoints, I think we're going to have similar problems. But uh, ultimately, I just kept coming back to like what I say to people often when they say something like, "My boss doesn't give me time to do tests," or something like that. Is ultimately like it's your decision to do the work the way you want to do it. And if you think it requires you to write tests to do the work right, then like write your tests. Like that's what's going to make you happy with the work. If somebody's like a junior engineer and they're hanging on to this job by a thread, that doesn't particularly help them, maybe. Right. Well, it doesn't so much apply when it's not your boss. It's a bunch of other developers who you're having to convince of your point of view. And like you actually do need them to see your point of view. Right. So what I, was, what I was getting at is like in this situation, I didn't feel comfortable just submitting this PR as is and being like, Okay, what do you think? 
right? I felt like I had to call out my objections in like my specific objections, like, hey, this this particular thing is funny because we are inheriting from here and I have to override it like this and like that kind of thing. Do you think you would feel less weird about it if instead of framing it as, all right, I'm going to go implement it the way you guys want it? Mm-hmm. If instead your your frame of reference was, I'm going to go implement it this way so that we can have some concrete code to look at and discuss. Yeah, I think I probably should have said that off the bat rather than like, okay, we'll do it that way. I should have said, okay, I'll put up a PR that way and we can discuss it. <clears throat> right. right. Rather than, and it, and it's a subtle difference, I think, but it makes a bit, I think that, that would have made a big difference. So yeah, maybe in the phrasing, I'd probably, I would feel less bad about it. I ultimately don't think it's a huge deal. No, I don't think anybody's going to have an issue with right. you re-raising your points now that there's actual code to point at and discuss right. it. Right. So, I don't know. I just like I just submitted that before we started recording, and I was like, oh, is this like really bad? Like, Oh, I was going to ask, how did it go? No, I don't know. Let's see. Has I anybody think... commented since we started? Probably not. It takes people a while to get get around to PRs. I probably, I'd I'm... imagine by next week I'll have either merged it or not. <laughs> Well, it's going to be funny because, like, what I'm expecting is I ripped it to shreds and them to be like, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of a reverse of, like, a nervous code review. Uh, <laughs> and, and to be fair, I just read my comments over again. I didn't really rip it to shreds so much as I, like, pointed out why each one of these things that seemed weird had to be weird. And ordinarily, I think, like, how I would how I thought I was going to approach this when this first got assigned to me was, like, okay... You know, I'm hearing that they want to use inheritance, but I'm hearing that that's because they want to share code. So, okay, I'll find like some abstractions to pull out that allow them to share code with yeah, objects. I mean, my first thought when I hear this thing takes 16 parameters, I'm fine with an object that just exists because they want to use dot notation instead of a hash. Because mm-hmm. like OpenStruct has the same potential typo issues that, that using a hash does, maybe a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly 16 parameters, like, there's probably some data clumps there. There's probably some bits of that that can live in their own right. slightly smaller <laughs> objects, and then you delegate. Well, there's already like five of these objects. There's other ones that have like six parameters and seven parameters, and uh, and they are six they or are... seven is pushing it. Right. But like right. that's well, certainly about... pos- positional too is really my biggest problem. Is like yeah, yeah, definitely. I would use keyword for all of these. Almost, I, I find myself using keyword for anything over two at this point. I agree. And it really, even two, if it's not obvious what the two should be, like if the second one is like a Boolean that controls something, then I will name it with a keyword or whatever. Doesn't Ruby Science say that that should be a separate method? Maybe. Probably should. Yeah. But for whatever reason, when I was going through this code, I was like trying to pull out objects and the things that I were, the higher level things that I were pulling out, I was like, these don't stand on their own as valuable abstractions. Like they're just like, I'm pulling out things that are common and struggling to give them some name so that I can use it somewhere else. And ultimately kind of yeah. came to the conclusion that the best thing to do would be to like model what I think like an optimal, what this opt, what this API would optimally be like, knowing that like it wants to be built for code reuse and then to backport the existing one onto like that type of framework. But they didn't, they didn't want to spend the time. There is a decent amount, like I think what would be lost is a decent amount of validation logic. Um, this app doesn't really rely on models for validation. It does a lot of validation services and things like that. Um, I like it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so I think that they were worried about losing a lot of that. So, um, And it, the current API uses uh, this thing called Rails Param. It's this gem where you can say, I think it predates strong parameters, but you can basically tell it 
like this parameter is required and I expect it to be of this type. It's kind of similar to stronger params, which is a yeah, thing. I was going to ask if you had heard that one. Right. I heard it. I looked at that one and I was like, oh, I could use that. But actually, because it's an API, what I would, if I were doing this from scratch and I cared about like saying like, I want to have types here and I want to be able to, what they're actually doing is validating the format of the request when it is received. I was like, if you're going to do that, why not use something like JSON schema? Because then you can also give that to clients and they can validate their client. Yeah. And that's probably how I would do that if I were going to build that from scratch and we cared about that particular aspect of it. If I were doing this API from scratch, when I say this API, including both strong parameters and uh, active model validations, mm -hmm. I would have them both be part of a single API that lives at the controller level and was a series of class macros in Ruby that is not specifically tied to, like, it can only do things that are representable with JSON schema. But right. assuming that you aren't doing things like, like, for example, it would have an API that takes, like, you could pass it a block and that block would take the value as a parameter and then that block would be responsible for validating and, and potentially typecasting as well. Mm -hmm. But then like with this class macro type thing, if you weren't, for example, ever passing it a block of arbitrary Ruby code, then it would presumably be able to generate JSON schema for the majority of, of, of simpler cases. So you said you liked that like the validations weren't in the model. So are you of the opinion that like models should be basically just maps to your schema? With yeah. very little, like, would you put methods there? Would you put, like, if you were doing a Greenfield project today, what would you do? I don't know the answer to that in Ruby. <laughs> like, so I think part of the problem I have with some of the approaches people are taking to uh, database libraries these days or to, like, just Rails puts too much stuff on the model is that to a certain extent, it is a lot of it is more fighting with these people want to be writing in a language that is not object-oriented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, certainly I could see something that is built around more you have business logic in decorators. I don't really like the idea of just like, you have a thing that decorates another thing with all of the behavior it needs. Yeah. But it's better because it's a decorator. I mean, so yeah, probably I would want I, I would want to have Maybe not a design that forces you to use a separate object for your business logic, but maybe a design that nudges you towards like, hey, if you have a lot of business logic, you mm -hmm. should pull out an object that takes your database model as a parameter. The trouble is deciding where that too much logic is and then also living with the fact that like some things are going to exist as methods on the objects and some things are going to exist as this Yep. in this other land and like the also I have no clue what the hell gently nudges you towards that would mean. <laughs> <laughs> It whispers in your ear. Um, the project I'm on now, like we spoke to the CTO about it. He taught, they have this situation where like the models were all pr originally pretty lean. Like there weren't a lot of methods on everything and everything was done in service objects. Your favorite thing. My favorite. Um, yep. And like some of those service objects I think we talked about on the show weren't particularly written very well. But he was talking about like trying to return to a more object-oriented approach where like you would call methods on the model rather than having to be like, oh, what service do I have to call in order to make this thing do that go through this business process or yeah. or whatever. It strikes me, the more I think about it, it strikes me as interesting because precisely so much of what I see and read from people who think long and hard about these things and do and still do Ruby apps is that they want to move in the direction that this client is already at. Right? They want to move more things out of the model into services, into objects. <laughs> and 
they're already there and they want to go back or you know at least this person wants to go thinks that they could stand to go back at least a little <laughs> i think there is a need in ruby for a bit more acceptance of putting things in modules and when i say modules i do not mean a module that you include or extend i mean modules in the javascript sense like a namespace is that what you're trying to get yeah, at basically like a namespaced function mm -hmm. that is grouped because it's a bag of logic but ultimately there is no state there are no methods to call. This is not a thing that you will be you where you will be using polymorphism, or at least you will not be using it in a place that you need polymorphism. It may be using polymorphism on its on its arguments, but like of just a function that lives in a namespace where the namespace like groups some things that are logically related that don't necessarily have any business being instance methods on the thing that they or things that they are operating on, but isn't something that justifies being its own object. Yeah, and I think that's what this project actually is trying to do. So if I take a look at, like, I'm going to open up one of the directories here. So most of the stuff is in app services, of course. And then there's, like, mm -hmm. a documents directory, which is the documents namespace. And the things you can do with, a doc with documents are, like, you can sign it. You can finalize the document. You can upload the document. Like, and those are all Ruby files, which are either right. modules or classes. But even the ones that are classes, like the pattern I'm encouraging are, like, if it's a class, it should really only be a class because it exists, like there's a class method that calls new and then calls the method that says do the thing, right? Right. And that's the and pattern. And I guess that method is called call. Right. <laughs> so that's basically the pattern that I've been trying to encourage them yeah. to follow in these objects. Then that's a function. But then there's other things in here that are like analytics and compute metadata and like things that are not as like, I don't know what this does. Where does this live? And, some of, and the, pro the problem also is like these things by their nature, I think, violate tell, don't ask. You end up like, well, okay, if the field on this model is this, then do that. Like, you end up querying into the object state in order to figure out what to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think tell don't ask fits <laughs> as a thing that we should follow. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not, it, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Like, it has no place. Mm -hmm. But like, tell don't ask applies like to persistence with active record models. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan though of separating logic from data. Which I know is like makes, which again is why I, I'm hesitant to say any of these things because Ruby's an object-oriented language. Object orientation is very much about the grouping of logic and data. Mm -hmm. But I also am of the opinion that there is some data that tends to just have too much damn logic associated with it to put in one file. <laughs> and I don't think it being an instance method has much benefit in most cases. Where, like... Something being an instance method, I think, makes sense when it's really, really something that is tied to self. Something like a, a full name method. I was going to say, something that derived directly from the data. It's yeah. additional data that's derived from the data on self. Directly. Yeah, certainly, certainly that is not a case. Right? Yeah, a big part of that is if you have a return value that is meaningful mm -hmm. and is not dependent on outside values. Mm. Okay. But, like, I have no issue with having behavior... Especially, this is part of why I think it makes... So, tell, don't ask, or uh, what's the other one? Uh, where where you have an object that only cares about uh, methods on another object. Uh, feature envy. Yep. Both of those, like, you start to see where... They start to matter less when it's a function on a module. Yep. And not, like, not a separate object. Now it's no longer, does this object have a reason to exist? The question is, does this function have a reason to exist? And so if you reframe it as should this function otherwise be an instance method? I think it's a lot 
easier to justify a function not being an instance method than it is to justify an object's existence. Right. And the places where I see the places in this code base where I see it, like I start to go, oh, this is where tell don't ask is telling me like this is a problem. Are like you know one of these services might need to know like is this object in a state where I can proceed, right? And so mm -hmm. it needs to figure it 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 queries various fields on the on the underlying object to say like okay uh, you know have we uploaded the document yet have they paid yet that kind of thing and so it's like okay uh, yep it is which is fine until some other service needs to know that same thing, right? And you're like okay am I going to reimplement this here or do I like I think if you're following this to the purest extent, you would create another service that's just like a query that like takes this thing and returns like, yes, it's in this state or no, it's not in this state. Or if it's simple enough, maybe you just go ahead and throw that right on the model, right? I don't know. I would, I would personally only reach for throwing that right on the model. So I'm willing to assume that answering both of those questions means coupling whatever answers the question to Stripe and S3. <laughs> I, that may or may not be true in this case but like let, let's just take that because that's probably the worst case scenario right and let's right. assume that that your model otherwise does not know or care about stripe or s3 right and in this case it doesn't but yeah i can see your point i would only consider going down that route if for whatever reason the thing that's asking this question needs to be polymorphic hmm what do you going down what route now adding it to the model going down the route of adding it to the model is this a question that you're ever going to ask for another object no, probably not. And so that's where I'm like, I have no issue with coupling to, this is the function you call to find out the answer to this question about this object. And it may not be an instance method, right. but I don't want this object to know about Stripe or S3. And then this function might know about how to access a payment process. Or, you know, in the, and in that end, once we go down that route, now it starts to become a lot easier to justify an object's existence because now this is the object that has an injected payment processor and file upload service, which could arguably be premature optimi optimization for we support multiple payment services or we support multiple file uploads. But really, both of those cases are, if nothing else, a case that tends to be polymorphic because you don't want to upload to S3 or actually charge a credit card in development or tests. Right. And so you do tend to want a, a, an injected thing there. Right. In this anyway, case, sorry, I'm going off on a... No, in this case, it wasn't actually needing to interface, to determine that wasn't needing to interface with Stripe or S3 or whatever, because at this point... Like another service has already set a flag in the database that says like, yep, it's paid. Yep, it's uploaded, right? Oh, well, I mean, if it's if it's actually just querying state on the model that's already on the model, yeah, no, that's right. an instance of it. Right. One of the really nice things, I said this before about working on this project with all these services, is it's like, okay, I need to know what happens when you sign a document. And so I just start typing in my fuzzy finder, document find, or document, you know, whatever sign. I was, sign, yeah. Document sign, and I'm like, yep, yep, there it is right there, right? Whereas in a more traditionally object-oriented, I would just open up the document class and look for sign. But when you get in this, like, middle ground, it's often like, wait, is this going to be, where is, where is this functionality live? Is it going to be in this, is it going to be a service or is it going to be on the model? So it's nice that for the most part, I'm able to just, like, look for a service that's well-named. But, na but as you do that, names become, like, even more critically important than they probably yeah. are. I do think you have, that does touch on something that's really important, though, and actually to a certain extent for this sort of business logic kind of should to a certain extent be a driving factor is how easy is it to find in one place or another. Right. And so far it's been the, the finding of the code has not been a problem, right? It's been the like making the code do 
what I think it should do. <laughs> That's been the problem. So to take a just a step back, because there was a, a, a thing you mentioned earlier that yep. I think would be an interesting point of discussion that we sort of glossed over, which was you uh, were mentioning a lot. You know, if I come at this from the point of view of and we're doing this for code reuse. Mm hmm. And the fact that you phrase it that way makes me wonder if this is code that is being kind of over abstracted and is code that maybe doesn't need to be reused. I don't necessarily think it's being over abstracted in this case. Okay. I think that it's likely that as the part of the business grows that this new API is for, the things that we're sharing will no longer be applicable to both. So, so that's what I mean, right? So, so they're going to diverge for different reasons. Yes. Yes. They will definitely diverge for different reasons. Which is this, like the definition of when not to share something. Right, but there will be some things that do. Like some new behavior may be added. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I asked. I was like, what's an example of new behavior that we expect to be able, we expect to add that will impact both? And I was given examples of things that were recently added, but nothing that's like, you know. But then conversely, they were like, what's an example of something to do that won't, that will be really difficult? And I was like, there's so much going on here that I can't answer that confidently until you ask me to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unta untangling overly coupled code when right. you need to uncouple it. Like, that's very hard to give concrete examples of that. I did kind of keep falling back on, like, I've done this before, and it's not turned out well. That's all I can yeah. say. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I will say what they have going for them is, like, because I had to try and reuse this code, I test drove the new API and found what's five or six bugs in some of the base classes that were never tested, right? And so mm -hmm. immediately, like, that other API got better because I was trying to use it. Yeah. You know, I wish I wasn't, but, <laughs> but you know, I did, I did fix five or six different small bugs that, you know, I don't know. I didn't check the error log, the error tracker to see if they've ever actually been hit. But, like, the first one was, like, I made a request without setting an HTTP key, and then it returned, like, it double rendered. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> Seems like an odd right. response to that. <laughs> right. But it was just like a thing that never had a test case around it. And for all likelihood, like this business is not like a business like GitHub where you have like thousands of users interacting with the API. It's a business right. like we have a few business partners and, you know, they make one request and get this thing. And they're like, what does this mean? And somebody says, add the API key. And they add the API key and they go on their way. Right. And then nobody ever fixes the bug. Right. Right. Or if, I mean, maybe it was never even hit. Who knows? So... Yeah, I mean, th that stuff gets fixed when you have more people. I mean, I guess that just goes to writing tests, right? <laughs> so. I am a big fan of the three strikes rule, though. What's the three strikes rule? Just the, the time where you start to look at abstracting common code is when it's being reused three times. Hmm, yeah. Not so much because, like, three times is when it becomes painful, but more because if you're needing the same code three times, that is a better... That is a good indicator that you have a concept that will remain common between all of its use points. And it's not always the case, but just needing the same thing twice is just as often coincidental duplication as it is an actual sign of a missing concept. Yeah. Whereas I think if you have the same code three times is a much better indicator of you have a concept needing abstraction. I do feel like people kind of understand that better when we start talking about tests, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least I've had more success getting people to understand that like duplication is not the enemy at all, at all, at all costs, right? It's not like don't ever type the same thing twice. And I have a little bit more success in that in tests because I'm able to quickly just say like, here's this test before where we were like trying to do type everything only once. 
And here's this test afterwards where, yes, I wrote the same, like, organization equals create organization seven times in this test. But, like, each individual test, like, when this test fails, you don't need to go up through the levels of context and befores and to figure out, like, okay, well, what's special about the organization that gets created here? That kind of thing. Right. And, and you still have that level of abstraction, right? So, so create organization could just easily be a function called create organization. Right. And then sometimes when that gets complicated, that's what it is. It becomes a method called create or right. a function called create, or, create organization, and you pass things to it or something um, to get what you want. But whether or not a test needs an organization is, is something that, if it ever does diverge, would diverge for different reasons. Yes. And, and I think it's common. There's a lot of, like, I don't want to duplicate code also happening in the tests. And that's the conversation we're going to be having soon, which is, like, we're going to be doing, like, a lunch and learn on. And the first thing we're going to talk about is, like, effective RSpec test writing. And, you know, it's going to come up that, like, don't worry about being non-repetitive, dry. Don't worry about being dry in the tests particular. And then once you start getting comfortable with that, you start to possibly start to understand like, oh, I don't always have to be like, this is just the same typing versus this is the same exact concept, right? Have you shown them uh, say any message talk on this? Uh, no. Which one is this? I'll probably suggest it tomorrow. When Get I'm... a whiff of this. Get a whiff of this. Right. The one where the line uh, duplication is cheaper than the wrong abstraction comes yes. from. Okay, so I have seen that talk, yeah. You, you know you know that meme where there's always a relevant XKCD? <laughs> yeah. Or We're getting to the point where there's always a relevant Sandy Metz talk. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, when I tweeted the error I got for like expected 16 arguments got zero or whatever, <laughs> uh, the first tweet response was, somebody's not listening to Sandy Metz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you sent me that on Slack, didn't you? Oh, yeah. The errors. Yeah. Yeah. That was... <laughs> I remember seeing it, but that was my reminder to, oh, right, I'm about to record a thing. I need to close all of my various <laughs> forms of communication. Right. Buckle up. <laughs> I like it. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm or right there in your podcast player. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have any feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time.